I talk to a lot of people every week. Some of you guys know this because I talk to you. And candidly, a majority of the time, a majority of the time, when people reach out to me, it's because they're facing some kind of challenge. And I will tell you this, I do have a few friends who will call me and just call me to tell me they're doing fine. And they say, everything is great. And our marriage is solid. And the kids are thriving. And I love my job. Or my business is growing and going well. But, but I really believe that they do that just so I can't say everybody who calls me calls me with a problem. I, I think they like to make it so that I can't do that. But the vast majority of people, when they reach out to me during the week, it's because something went off the rails. And over the years, I've been doing this a few years, I've been able to kind of discern a pattern that, that kind of hooks together a commonality between all the calls that I receive. And, and here's the pattern. The crises of life seem to have a direct correlation to the crises of faith. The challenges of life seem to have a direct correlation to the challenges of faith. It's like this. When bad things happen to good people, we can talk about that another day. When bad things happen to good people, the go-to question is always, well, if there's really a God, and if this God is really good, how do you explain the struggle that I'm experiencing, that I'm going through right now? But the corollary to that question, of course, is if there really is a good God, why do so many bad things happen in the world? It's a good question. By the way, the answer briefly is the reality of the existence of sin in the world. But we don't have time to get into that today. That's not what today's message is about, but we can talk about it later. Unless you get the idea that only a handful of unique and special people have these questions and doubts, don't. Over the course of a lifetime, just about everyone who has faced or is facing a serious issue or a serious problem or a serious challenge or a serious struggle has experienced a corresponding challenge to their faith. Or put another way, faith often gets weaker as our circumstances grow worse. And when that happens, something is always there to fill the space that is left by our weakened faith. And that something that fills the space is fear. And fear is a nasty creature. Fear will creep into your life and slowly overwhelm all of the positive things you have going for you. And if left unchecked, fear will utterly destroy your life and render you helpless and, more critically, hopeless. And strangely enough, fear will also cause us to become amateur soothsayers or armchair fortune tellers. This is really weird. When fear has crept into our minds, it mysteriously causes us to become convinced that we know the future. We can predict the future for certain. We can tell for sure what the future holds and what the future doesn't hold. And it also convinces us that there can't possibly be anyone who has any control over it all. Not even God. And maybe you're going through something right now, and you're feeling that right now. And I want you to know 
I'm not up here throwing rocks. I'll tell you that because I never do. It is safe to say that to some degree, every one of us can relate to that feeling, which makes sense. If you haven't noticed, we are living in unprecedented times. It is weird out there. Over the past few years, so many things in our world have changed. Our jobs have changed. The way we do our jobs have changed. Our families have changed. Our children have changed. Our schools have changed. Our work has changed. Our business has changed. Our finances have changed. And our very futures have changed. And even though as a pastor... I could take the easy way out, and I could just come up here and pound the pulpit and say, just believe, just hang in there, you're going to get through this, or, or you're going to be just fine, remember God is faithful, and I could do all those things, and they're true, but quite candidly, I don't have the moral authority to say that, because much of the time, I am right there with you. As one of my favorite mentors is fond of saying, we are all just beggars telling other beggars where we found bread. That's who we are. Now, with all that said, I do know someone who does have that kind of moral authority to assure us about our future. And we've been talking about him for the past five weeks. We know him as the Apostle Peter. Which brings us to part six of our message series, You're Not Far. Now, if Peter were here with us today, Peter would have the authority to let us know precisely what to do and how to respond to the challenges of life. So why don't we pray, and then we'll talk about it. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together here this morning. Thank you for the, for the people you've brought, for their hearts, for their situations, for their families. Thank you for the love that they have for you. Thank you for the curiosity that they have to know more about you, the desire that they have to draw closer to you. So God, as we're here together, gathered today, open our hearts and minds so that we might receive your word and allow it to sink in and allow it to motivate us to draw closer to you. We love you, God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So for the last few weeks, and if you missed any messages, you can go to hammockstreetchurch.com, click on the message tab. You can also go to YouTube. You can find it there. But we've been looking at Peter's account of the life of Jesus as told to us and recorded in the gospel of Mark. So remember, Peter, Peter was a fisherman. He really wasn't a writer. So he dictated, Peter was an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry, and he dictated his whole experience while he was in prison. He dictated his whole experience to Mark, who wrote all this stuff down. Did you know that, by the way? The Gospel of Mark is really, it's kind of sort of the Gospel of Peter. But Mark's the guy who wrote it down, so he's the one who gets the title up there, you know? Anyway, Mark's Gospel was written about 35 years after Jesus' resurrection. So sometime in the 60s A.D., and in telling the story, Peter wanted his audience, whoever was able to read it at the time, and Peter wanted us, to know that without question, notwithstanding everything that Peter had experienced, he still believed that Jesus is the Son of God. He still believed that Jesus is the Messiah, Hamashiach in Hebrew, the Savior of the world. From the very start... Peter let us know that everywhere Jesus went, he proclaimed the same message, which was this. We've seen this before in all these messages in this series. Mark 1, verse 15. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The, the wait is over. 
The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near, which means you are not far. So you need to turn. You need to face and embrace the fact that God has done something in the world that the world has never seen before. And you're invited to become a part of that movement. You're invited to be involved. You're invited to be Jesus' hands and feet here in our world in 2023 as a part of the movement. Well, last week we saw how Jesus and his disciples left Caesarea Philippi, which was up in the northern part of what we call Israel today, and they set out on the long journey south to Jerusalem. It's actually, you know, Israel's a fairly small place, but when you're walking, it's not so small. So they're journeying south to Jerusalem. They're going down there to celebrate the Passover. The Passover is probably the biggest of the, of the pilgrimage festivals in the Jewish calendar. Pilgrimage festival means it's required, if you can, to go to Jerusalem to worship. So as they're traveling, heading down south to Jerusalem, Jesus turned the typical understanding of authority on its head as he told the disciples this in Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Again, this is what we talked about last week. He said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. In, in other words, you, you know what those Romans do they, they stand in the position of power and they lord it over. They, they use it to bully all the people over whom they have power. And when the disciples heard this, they're responding in their minds, yes, we know how it works and we can't wait till it's our turn to do that. I mean, that's what they're doing. This is exciting. We get to be the bosses. We get to be in charge. But Jesus, in response to that, said, but not so with you. You're not going to do that. Jesus said, I am not that kind of king, and that is not the kind of kingdom I have come to establish. And before they could respond, Jesus told them, and he told us why he said that. He said in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve. Now remember, the Son of Man is one of the messianic titles that we get from the Old Testament. We get it from the prophetic book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and that's a way to refer to Messiah. So that's why Jesus said it. For even the Son of Man, he's talking about himself as Messiah, did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus was telling them, listen, if I, as the Messiah, as the Son of Man, did not come to be served, who do you think you are asking to be served? Jesus says, I came to give my life for my people. And as he continued, he spoke a phrase that just confounded them. He told them that he had come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, why were they confounded by this? Why were they confused by this? Well, think about it. On their way from Galilee in the north of, in the north of Israel to Jerusalem in the south, the crowd following them just continued to grow. People just kept following the crowd, coming out of their homes, following Jesus. And by the time they reached the holy city, by the time they reached Jerusalem, they were surrounded by Passover pilgrims who were all on their way to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And along the way, as the crowd grew, so did Jesus' reputation. And word was spreading about him. It was all word of mouth, right? They weren't tweeting, and there was no social media posts, and there were no telephones or anything like that. Just word of mouth. It's word is spreading about this prominent guy who was saved by Jesus, who was brought back from the dead. The guy's name was Lazarus. 
And word was also spreading about how Jesus had just returned the sight of a blind man, Bartimaeus. Indeed, it's believed that Bartimaeus was part of the crowd that accompanied Jesus to Jerusalem. Jesus gave him back his sight, and he said, I'm going with you. Well, Jesus had generated quite the buzz. Everybody in the area was talking about him. In fact, even before Jesus entered the gates of the city of Jerusalem, we go to Mark 11, verse 8, many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. This is what we talk about on Palm Sunday, you know, when right around the time Easter comes up. Yeah, Easter comes up. So they spread, their branch, they spread the branches out. They spread their cloaks out. They said, welcome, welcome, Messiah. Welcome to Jerusalem. I mean, the people are totally hyped. They were absolutely convinced this was it, their Messiah, the one whom they'd been pray- for whom they'd been praying, the one for whom their ancestors had been praying for hundreds of years. He was finally here. He had finally arrived, and at long last, he was going to proclaim himself king. And they thought, our suffering will come to an end. And they were so excited, their joy couldn't be contained, so they put their cloaks on the road, and they spread out branches before him as those who went ahead. And those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is a Hebrew expression of praise that translates directly to save, please, or save us. So they said, save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then their chant turned political, of all things. It's really interesting how unchanging human nature is from 2,000 years ago to today. Politics cannot help but seep its way into faith. It's very strange because they continued and they said, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. That went from being a godly event to we're going to have a kingdom here on earth. The crowd was thinking the same thing that the disciples were thinking. That when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he is going to proclaim himself king. So it's only natural that the 12, that the disciples were absolutely euphoric. This is what they've been waiting for. And even though they'd had all these discussions with Jesus, we talked about this a few weeks ago, about Jesus' suffering, and he's going to get spit on, yuck, and he's be flogged, and he's going to die. All those discussions, they, they forgot about those. They kind of fell into the background. And they thought, yeah, Jesus is obviously exaggerating to make a point, because clearly that's not happening. Look at this triumph. I mean, how could this moment of joy and celebration be anything other than that, anything other than wonderful? And things kept on looking up. They arrived in the late afternoon, and immediately in Mark 11, 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple courts, and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, no one was there. He walked in, and everybody had gone home. So he went out to Bethany with the 12. So Jesus went right to the temple. He looks around. Nothing's happening. So without saying or doing anything, He and the 12 leave the city of Jerusalem, and they go to the small town of Bethany, about two miles away, to stay for the night. Now, isn't this interesting? Peter includes this fact in this story. He includes the fact that nothing happened. Think about that. He included the fact that Jesus walked in and zero things happened, and they just left. Why did he include it? Because it's a true story. And Peter said to Mark, it's true, write about it. I need you to write it down because I need you to tell the whole truth. Anyway, Scripture tells us they got up the next morning, they headed back to town, they headed back to Jerusalem. Think about it this way. If, if, you, if you are a college football fan, 
and you want to go to the football game on Saturday, but all the hotel rooms in the town are booked, you stay in the near neighborhood town, the nearing town, you know, town 30 minutes away or 15 minutes away just so you can get a hotel room. And that's what they were doing. Bethany was just a couple miles away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was packed with Passover pilgrims. So there was nowhere else to stay. They get up the next morning. They head back to Jerusalem. And I'm sure the disciples were thinking, all right, here we go. This is going to be awesome. And then we go to Mark 11:15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus enters the temple courts. I don't know if you can picture the temple, but there was a center part of the temple, and then there was a kind of a terrace, and they called that the temple court, and that's where you could go and mill about and hang around, and you heard pastors or preachers out there preaching, but the temples where all the sacrifices took place inside, so they entered the temple courts. But instead of Jesus announcing at that moment that the Messiah was in the house, something unexpected happened. If you've been in church for a while, you probably have heard this story. Jesus went to the temple courts and, verse 15, he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Real quick, why they were doing that. Again, Passover is a pilgrimage festival, which means Jews from all over, different regions, different principalities, different kingdoms, would all converge on Jerusalem, and they would all have different kind of money. So they'd bring their own money... And then they'd have to change their money for the local money, for the Roman denarius, so they could, or or even the Hebrew shekel, but really it was the Roman denarius, so they could buy an animal to sacrifice. So that's why they're changing money. And what happened was the money changers, well, they took advantage of the exchange rate. And so they would give you money, but it wouldn't be what it was worth. It would be way under what it was worth. Well, Jesus was very upset. He was really ticked off at the offenders. So he says, my house will be called a house of prayer. He's referring to the temple for all nations but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, this has become a theme with Jesus, and as you can imagine, what he said did not sit well with the leaders. How do we know? Because we go to verse 18. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, these are the Jewish leaders, heard this and began looking for a way to kill Jesus. They heard that Jesus was a problem for them, and verse 18 continues, they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teachings. This new teacher is coming in, and he is wowing the crowd. And they're supposed to be in charge. The crowd's only supposed to listen to them. And he's listening to this new teacher. They were amazed at Jesus. And it's interesting. The leaders weren't freaked out by the miracles Jesus had done, the the healing and so on. They were freaked out by the fact that he was winning the people over. He was more popular than they were. People were listening to him and not listening to them. Well, anyway, at the end of that day, verse 19, Jesus and his disciples leave the city of Jerusalem. Then his disciples and Jesus, they head back to their Airbnb in Bethany. The next day, they head back into the city and they go back to the temple where the leaders were waiting for him. And the leaders were like, we need to nip this in the bud. By the way, it's bud, not butt, okay? We need to nip this in the bud this Jesus problem, we need to get the people back on our side. So what they did was they asked Jesus a whole bunch of questions about his authority because they thought they were pretty clever. They wanted to ask Jesus a question to trip him up so the people said, oh, he's a phony, we don't have to listen to him. Sorry about that, religious leaders, we'll listen to you again. But Jesus, he parries their attacks, every attack he turns away and he returns fire. And in his return, in his retort, he insinuates that they, that the religious leaders are the real bad guys. What do you think that did? 
Well, that made him even more angry. We go to Mark 12, 12. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest Jesus because they knew that he had spoken the parable, he had spoken in a parable, against them. But they were afraid of the crowd. So they were torn. They wanted to take Jesus out. If they could have, they'd have killed him. But then the crowd would have turned on them and it would have been really ugly. So they were afraid of the crowd. So they just left Jesus and they went away. They kind of regrouped. And Jesus stayed there and he continued to teach on the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount, temple's up on a hill. And so Jesus taught from those temple courts. Jesus was just destroying them. He was beating them in every argument. So apparently after a lunch meeting, they came back with even more Questions, Mark 12, 13, to catch Jesus in his words. The Pharisees, who remember the Pharisees, um, it comes from the Hebrew word perushim, which means the separated ones. They were the really holy ones. When you drive around South Florida, particularly here in Boca, and you see on Friday nights and Saturday mornings Orthodox Jews walking around, the really ultra-Orthodox with the hats and the beards and the, the big crazy strimals and all that stuff, those are basically the modern descendants of the Pharisees, and also the Herodians at that time. The Herodians were Jewish people who were supportive of King Herod. King Herod was sort of a puppet king. He was, he was propped up by the Romans, and he, so he was loyal to the Romans. So the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they kind of went first to try to take Jesus down. And what ensued from there, and if you've heard me speak, you know this is one of my all-time favorite Jesus moments. I, I love this moment so much. This is one of my favorite things about it teach him about Jesus. I've talked about it in the past. I'll talk about it in the future. And the reason why I've done so is because we typically miss it. We typically misunderstand what's going on here. Or we, at a minimum, we miss just how brilliant Jesus' play is here. So let's take a look at that. So the Pharisees started off, and they tried to distract Jesus, and they tried to disarm Jesus, and they opened up by trying to get him to lower his defenses. So they're trying to butter him up so he's not quite so defensive, so he's not quite so sharp on his feet. So here's what they say, verse 12. And if you're, if you're old enough to remember Leave it to Beaver, this is Eddie Haskell, okay? Hello, Mrs. Cleaver, you look lovely today. Okay, this is what's going on here. So they say to him, teacher, talking to Jesus, we know that you are a man of integrity, you aren't swayed by others. Oh, no, you're too good for that because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So you see what they're doing? Jesus, we know that you're above all of this. So, oh, we think you're great, Jesus. And then they kind of dropped the hammer. And here's what they asked him. Jesus, is it right to pay the imperial tax, the Roman tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay the Romans, the tax that they asked for, or shouldn't we? Now, it's interesting. The tax that they're referring to is a poll tax. And it was required of every person in Judea, every person in that Roman province of Judea. And as is the case with most taxes today even, people hated paying their taxes. Now, in that moment, they hated paying the tax to Rome because to them, it was just a painful reminder of the fact that they were living under the thumb of this oppressive Roman Empire. Now, the Pharisees thought that they had a winning question here. They thought, this is it. This is where it all ends, right here. If Jesus answers, yes, it's okay to pay the taxes, all the Jewish nationalists... Isn't it interesting how similar politics are? All the Jewish nationalists would be angry with Jesus 
Because to them, it would look like he was siding with the Romans. It was a very clever question, actually. They figured they had him. And I'm, I, I, doubt, I, I have no doubt that the leaders were sitting back there and kind of giggling with anticipation. He, 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 like, how's he going to answer this? It's going to be great. And on top of all that, they were in Jerusalem for the Passover. So the people's anti-Roman sentiment was really high that year. All the Jews in the region were there. They outnumbered the Romans 10 to 1. And so, so there, was a, there was a groundswell. It was a, it was a powder keg. They were just waiting for something to happen. So I'm sure that when this question was asked, people were kind of leaning in, and the crowd got really quiet because they had to hear what would happen next. Well, of course, Jesus wasn't fooled. In verse 15, we read, Jesus knew their hypocrisy. He knew what they were doing. He wasn't fooled by this. And if you have someone buttering you up, don't be fooled by it either. So Jesus asked him point blank. He says, why are you trying to trap me? And then he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. This is where the fun begins. This is a picture of a Roman denarius. A denarius is a coin, a Roman coin. And the coin was equal, equal in value to a day's wages for the average Roman. Okay, so a day's wages, that was, that was sort of, you know, one of, the, one of the prices of tax. The Romans required the Jews to pay their tax with Roman coinage. The Jews had to use a denarius to pay their tax. Now, on the front of the coin, the picture you see up on the left, is the image of Caesar, of the king, the emperor, Tiberius Caesar. Around the edges of the coin, I can't show you the edges, but around the edges it said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Augustus Caesar was his father. Which means that, he called him the divine Augustus, which means that the Romans considered Tiberius to be a son of God. He's the son of a divine. He's the son of the divine Augustus. Augustus was considered a god. Now, on the back of the coin, which you can see on the right, it indicates a picture of Tiberius sitting on his throne. Because Tiberius, as the emperor, was the high priest of the Roman religion, the absolutely combining church and state. Now, this coin was just downright offensive to the Jewish people. And when Jesus said, bring me that coin, he knew exactly what would happen. So here's what happened. The religious leaders brought Jesus the coin. And it was in that moment that Jesus had them in checkmate. Because while a Pharisee was holding that coin, a Jewish religious person was holding that coin, Jesus asked, whose inscription is on this? Whose image is on this? Do you see what he did? Now, unless you've heard me teach this before, you don't. Because why would you? How could you? But the Jews in the crowd, they did. They saw it. And I'm going to tell you why. Because you see, Jewish law forbade a Jew from carrying or holding Roman coins. Why? Because Roman coins bore on them a graven or carved image. And that violates the second commandment of the Big Ten, you know. That's the second one. We find it in, let me get this to go. There we go. We find it in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. So it violates that commandment. That face, that picture of, of Caesar kind of sitting on the throne, that is a carved image. Now, let me show you the opposite here. These are modern Israeli shekels. The shekel is their coinage, Okay. 
Do you see what they don't have on them? They don't have graven images. They don't have images of people. They don't have images of animals. And by the way, these are modern. Still to this day, they don't. They only have numbers, and they have plants. They have objects. There's a menorah on one of them. It was against God's law to make or even hold any kind of image of a person or an animal. Imagine, I imagine at that moment, the crowd looks something like this. Crowd was like, whoa! It was game over. And Jesus wasn't done. And to drive his point home, Jesus asked them, he says, all right, whose image is this? And whose inscription? He's like, in case you missed my point, whose image is this? It's like, oh, snap. They're holding an image. They're holding an idol. And they all replied, Caesar's. They were carrying around, on the Temple Mount, no less, idolatrous money. Poof, man, they, they were done. They lost the argument. The crowd knew it. And then Jesus said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, Jesus said to them, well, then, I guess you should give Caesar back his money, right? Jesus told out a little treat for the people in the audience when he said next, and give back to God what is God's. Why is that a treat for the people in the audience? Because let me ask you all, Bible scholars, what belongs to God? All the things, right? In Psalm 24, verse 1, David writes, the earth is the Lord's, and how much in it? Everything in it. It all belongs to God anyway. It was so clever. Everything belongs to God. All the things belong to God. Jesus had them, and they knew it. And the crowd, Mark 12, 17, they were amazed with him. Jesus won. Pharisees, nothing. Now, the Sadducees were the next ones to step up. These are all Jewish parties, Jewish different movements and sects inside of, inside of Judaism, not too dissimilar from today, Orthodox Jews, Conservative Jews, Reformed Jews, Reconstructionist Jews, similar like that. Now, recall that the Sadducees, well, the Sadducees in their theology, they did not believe there was any life after death. They did not believe you go to heaven and you live forever. They didn't believe in an afterlife. So they were sad, you see. Very good, guys. Well, they came up with an even more convoluted question. So remember, they don't believe in life after death, okay? So listen to the question. They came up with this question that was based upon something that's called Leveret Law. Leveret Law is a Jewish law that mandates the brother of a man who dies with no children has to marry the brother's widow and then raise any children born from that union on his brother's behalf. Okay? So remember... Brother's dead, he's in heaven, Sadducees don't believe in an afterlife, but this is the Leveret Law. So they come up with this crazy hypothetical situation, this is going to be a big slide, but I'll read it to you. Here's the hypothetical, this is our hypothetical. There were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but also died without leaving any children. It was the same with the third. In fact, None of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. Here's the question. At the resurrection, remember, the Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection are asking this question about the resurrection. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since seven men were married to her? 
Okay, given the fact that they didn't believe in the resurrection, it was very clear that they were asking this question to mock Jesus. And in response, Jesus scoffed at them. And he basically said, you guys don't even know your Bible. You knuckleheads don't even know your Bible. And then he did something magnificent. Jesus noted just how clearly God, in Moses' book of the Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, in, in the book of the Exodus, if you want to look it up, Exodus 3, 6, Jesus speaks in the present tense of how God, the God of the living, is presently the God of the patriarchs who have passed, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So in other words, Jesus speaks to them from Exodus, we call it 3, 6, they didn't have numbers back then, saying the God of the living is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who are, who are gone because they live eternally according to to the scripture. That's it. It's over. Roasted. It's done. And from then on, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. That was the end of the gotcha questions. And from there, after a little more teaching, Jesus and the disciples begin to head out of Jerusalem for the evening. But now we jump all the way to Mark 13.1. As Jesus is leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, so they're, they're leaving the temple, they're heading back to Bethany, they look back at Jerusalem, and he says, look, teacher, look at the temple. Look at those massive stones. Look at those magnificent buildings. So he's referring to the temple, the temple that King Herod, the, the Jewish king that was loyal to the Romans, had recently refurbished and recently expanded. He expanded its size, and he made it opulent. He made it beautiful. It was really something. It was massive. It took up like 37 acres, the whole complex. And some of the stones used to renovate the temple weighed up to 10,000 pounds. That's, each stone was the weight of two large cars. And as they marveled at the massive and impressive building, Jesus said something that seemed outrageous. So here's what he said in Mark 13, 2. He says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one, every stone will be thrown down. Did you notice what he said? He didn't say one day they will all crumble. He didn't say one day they will all fall down. He said these massive 10,000-pound stones would be thrown down. Every stone in the massive temple complex would be thrown down into the valley below. And the disciples must have been thinking, come on, let it take an army. And it happened, just as Jesus said it would. 40 years after that time, in about 70 A.D., actually on August 6, 70 A.D., the Roman legions entered Jerusalem, and after fighting a siege for four months, they lit everything in the temple on fire. Everything that would burn, they lit it on fire. And then Roman general Titus, who was in charge of the legions at that time, he would later become Emperor Titus, using Jewish slave labor, tore down every single stone off the altar, every single stone around the temple, every single stone in the temple, and dragged every single one of those stones to the edge of the cliff and pushed it off. And if you visit the temple in Jerusalem today, you can actually see these stones. They're still there, lying at the base of the wall. Now, why should we care? Because as Jesus had said earlier in Matthew's gospel, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. 
there will come a time when the temple will no longer be necessary for God's people. Something greater than the temple has, in fact, arrived. The old was passing away. The new had come. The kingdom of God was near because the king was in town. And the new that had come was better than the old that there was. And it would make, as a pastor friend of mine likes to say, it would make the you beside you every bit as sacred as the temple in Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit resides in each one of God's people. As the Apostle Paul would tell the believers in Corinth, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So the time had come, the kingdom of God had come near, and all that remained to be done was for the king to ratify his new arrangement between himself and mankind. And here's what happened next. Mark 14, 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. Once again, Jesus and the disciples were outside the city in Bethany, and the disciples said to him, all right, boss, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? They didn't know Jesus had already made arrangements. So Jesus says to them, all right, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water, hold on to that thought, will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house as he enters, the teacher asked, Jesus asked, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, the upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The reason I told you to note that was it wasn't typical for a man to carry a water jar. In those days, it was typical for a woman to carry a water jar. But here it was a man, so that made it odd. That made it something you could notice. So the disciples left. They went into the city, and they found things just as Jesus said they would. And the man led them to the house. Verse 16, they, prayed for, they prepared for the Passover. They prepared for the Passover in the upper room. And verse 17, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. Why did Jesus enter the city at night this time, after the sun went down? Because if you've noticed, when he'd gone into the city when the sun came up, he was mobbed, he was surrounded by people, and those people had lots of questions. So he arrived when he knew it would be quiet, and he arrived with the 12. And I'm sure Peter was thinking at this time, this has got to be it, this has got to be the moment. And Peter was right, sort of. It, It just wasn't the moment that Peter and the others were anticipating. Now, if you've ever celebrated communion with us, you're familiar with what happened next. Verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. And I'm pretty confident that the disciples paused for a beat, and they were like, Uh, John, did he just say the bread was his body? Jesus kept going, and he took a cup, and after he'd given thanks... He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And then Jesus held his cup up, and he said, This is my blood of the covenant. And at that moment, it really struck them, and they're like, Wait a minute. He just made Passover all about himself, didn't he? Passover is a celebration of God releasing his people from bondage in Egypt to the freedom of the promised land. Jesus just made Passover all about himself. And then they're thinking, In any way, only God can establish a covenant. And anyway, a covenant needs two parties. So who is this covenant? What is this covenant and who is it between? And Jesus continued, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Jesus was saying, this is a covenant between God and everybody. And maybe the disciples were thinking, uh, 
Okay, but what we really need is a new kingdom with you, Jesus, as the king, but you know, we're still listening. And it will be a little while before they really understood the significance of what Jesus had said, but certainly they knew something, something different was going on. Meanwhile, they probably saw Jesus looked a little uneasy at the time. You remember, if you know the story, they were singing a hymn, they left the upper room, they moved out to the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed. Remember, that's the time he prays and he's, he's sweating blood, crying blood. He wasn't himself. Well, before long in the garden, they heard a noise. Then they saw the torches in the distance carried by the temple guard and it was closing in on them. And they noticed their brother, the one who was one of the 12 Judas leading the way. And Peter, remember, Peter's the impulsive one. He jumps out and he cuts the ear off the servant of the high priest, which Jesus was not happy about. And Jesus said, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts. You didn't arrest me there. You know I'm not a threat. Why are you coming at me with weapons? And then Peter made a decision that he would regret for the rest of his life. You see, Peter was conflicted. His expectations about Jesus weren't squaring with what he was watching take place in front of him. So there was this gap. There was this space between what Peter expected Jesus to do and who Peter thought Jesus was and what Peter was going through, what Peter was experiencing. And in that moment, as is often the case for us, Peter lost hope. Peter and the disciples then deserted Jesus and fled. They left. They thought, this is it. Jesus' run is over. It was an interesting three years, but I guess it's over. It was obvious to them that, you know what? Jesus wasn't the king after all. He wasn't the Messiah. There wasn't going to be any kingdom. Now what happens? Isn't that human nature? To assume the worst about God when the situation and the circumstances don't go as you expected them? When, when the situation and circumstances are at their worst? Faith almost always deteriorates when circumstances deteriorate. And in those moments, when faith deteriorates, it's replaced by what? Fear. In those moments, just like Peter, we all become fortune tellers, don't we? I know what's going to happen now. We're going to lose the house. We're going to lose the car. We're never going to make it. That's what we do. We become certain we know what the future holds. And we become remarkably confident that there's just nobody holding our future. Well, Peter understood that. Peter lived that. In the moment when everything went off the rails... In the moment when all of a sudden Peter's future just blew up as far as he was concerned. Peter went from being a follower of the rabbi about whom everyone in the region was talking to being a deserter and a fugitive. In that moment, Peter lost hope and he deserted Jesus just like everyone else. And that turned out to be the second biggest mistake of Peter's life. Which led to the first biggest mistake and the greatest regret of Peter's life. Everything Peter saw And everything Peter felt in that moment led him to the conclusion that God is not near. But in truth, he was. Peter would later learn that, in fact, in those terrifying moments when it seemed that God was so distant, he was, in fact, right there. He was close, and he was about to do something magnificent for which his people had been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years. And if Peter could speak with us today, he would likely say to us, don't make the same mistake. When things get tough, when everything goes dark, don't do what I did. Don't follow my example. Don't abandon your faith. Don't abandon your Savior. Don't abandon your loving Heavenly Father. If Peter could do it all again, he most certainly would have done things differently. 
And as we wrap up this morning, consider this. The same men who abandoned Jesus when suddenly their future went dark and when there was a gap between what they experienced and what they expected are the same men who would spend and risk the rest of their lives ensuring that you and I can know with 100% certainty that God is near and you are not far. And because of what happens next in this story, everything standing in the way between you knowing that and experiencing that has been removed. You will not want to miss the conclusion of this series, not next weekend, but the weekend after on September 24th. In this series, You're Not Far, let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for just an amazing story. A story that has such detail that it's impossible to doubt its truth, its veracity. God, thank you for drawing us into this community, for drawing us into the community of God's people. The people whom God has called to be his hands and feet here on earth. The people to whom God has given hope and life and security and is blessed with abundance. God, as we head from here today, help us to remember that's who we are. We are children of the king, the king of the universe. Let us govern ourselves, conduct ourselves, carry ourselves as if we know that to our core so that all around us can see and ask, what is it? What is it that gives you the hope that you have? God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.